morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good, good morning. It's good to be here. Thank you guys for uh, making it through some snowy roads to get here to church this morning. Do me a favor, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, and hopefully you have a Bible with you or you have um, an app on your phone where you can follow along. We've got a lot to get through. And um, if you've been following with us over uh, this season, you know that we are in a study of the life of Christ. And we are looking at the interactions that Jesus had with people while he was doing ministry here on earth. And, and if you've kind of been paying attention or following along, we're, we're doing something a little bit different. We're not just looking at what Jesus taught or what Jesus did, but we're trying to find what was Jesus trying to communicate? What was he trying to accomplish in his disciples' hearts? What was the why behind the what of what Jesus was doing? And uh, we're going to look at a passage this morning that's actually quite famous. It's the story of the transfiguration. And what happens is Jesus is going to take his three closest friends. They're going to go up on top of a mountain, and Jesus is going to allow his humanity to fade for just a moment. And he starts to shine like the sun, and Peter, James, and John are exposed to the divinity of Jesus in a way that's truly breathtaking. And they have what, what's kind of termed in Christian circles a mountaintop experience. And do you guys ever have a time as in your relationship with Christ where you felt like you were on a mountaintop? Maybe it was when you got saved, or maybe it was at a conference or at a camp, or maybe the Lord did something significant in your life or in your family's life. And it's like, wow, God is so present. He's so close. It's like I can tangibly feel his presence. This is the moment that the disciples have this morning. What we're going to look at is why did Jesus allow that to happen what was the purpose of it? And to kind of give the uh, big idea away, he, here it is, it's this. It's that the purpose of the mountaintop is always to come back down. The purpose of the mountaintop for the disciples and Jesus, it wasn't to stay there, but it was to come back down. And when we meet with the Lord and are close and have these seasons where there are mountaintop experiences in our faith, the purpose is never to stay, but it's always to come back down. And uh, what um, we need to do is we need to understand what's going on right before the transfiguration, if we're going to get this story at all. And uh, so do me a favor, if you have your Bibles open, look at Matthew 16, verse 21. And before I read, you just need to remember, Jesus and his disciples have been super busy. They've been doing a ton of ministry. It's been hard. It's been frustrating because everywhere Jesus goes, he's being misunderstood. He, he teaches for three days. He does a miracle to feed a crowd. And all of the Pharisees want is to see him do more miracles. And the disciples don't get what he's doing. And, and the religious leaders don't understand him. And, and there is confusion. People think he's John the Baptist. People think he's Elijah. And, and finally, at the end of last week's message, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And he's a little bit desperate. Like, do even you guys who are with me all the time, do you understand what I'm doing or who I am? And Peter has like this really great moment where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that's absolutely right. And Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So there's this really kind of special moment between Jesus and Peter. And that leads us to Matthew 16, verse 21. Here's what it says. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and that he would be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." 
Right? Can we all agree for a moment when Jesus calls you Satan, it's a bad day, right? So Peter goes from like a really good moment to a really bad moment in classic Peter fashion. It says, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what I want you to see from these verses is the backdrop of the transfiguration is that there's a real sense of fear amongst the disciples, right? These disciples were men who had their jobs. One was a tax collector, others were fishermen, and they were called by Jesus, young guys, and Jesus says, come follow me. And they dropped everything. They're following Jesus who claims to be the Messiah and he is doing miracles and he's casting demons out of people and he's teaching with an authority that's never been heard before. And the disciples are like, this is amazing. We're part of this movement that's gonna change the world. And then all of a sudden, Jesus changes the game on them in Matthew 16. He's like, oh, and by the way, we're gonna go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be brutally murdered. And also, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me too, because following me is going to bring you a lot of pain. And so you got these guys who are just fishermen and and following Jesus and doing their best. And now Jesus is promising that the path to following Jesus is one of pain and sorrow and death. And, And I think there's this thought in their mind that like, man, maybe we didn't sign up for this. And for six days, for a whole week, it's just lingering in the air. And imagine being a a disciple in that moment. Imagine how the awkward silence would have been when they were all together. Hey, do you remember when Jesus just said that we were going to die? Imagine being a disciple and laying your head on your pillow at night and it's quiet. And what are you thinking about in those moments? Like there was a real sense of fear and... um. Have you ever signed up for something that you didn't know you were getting yourself into and you're like, I didn't sign up for this? Do you guys know what that feels like? Has that ever happened? If you're sitting next to that person, please don't point to them right now. That would be (laughs) unkind. Um, When I was in high school, um, I was part of a, a youth group at a church and we had an opportunity to do a missions trip. And it was really, really cool for for me personally because we were partners with a church in Romania. And it was the same um, church that had an orphanage connected to it where my family adopted my sisters. So we were going to go on a mission trip. We were going to go to that orphanage, and we were just going to help with some construction projects for about a week. And we were going to do a VBS and and just kind of love on on the kids that were there. So I was really excited to go. And and the way the mission trip worked, just like we do when we do mission trips here, we had team meetings. We had to um, raise support. I had to write letters to friends and family asking if they would support. And we had these team meetings. We're talking about how do we not be offensive Americans in a different culture? Right, we learned about Romania, and one of the things that was made very, very clear in these meetings is, listen, these people have very, very, very little when it comes to earthly possessions, and they want to be generous, and they're going to be hospitable, so they're going to like spend way too much money on food that they should to feed you because they love you and they want to be gracious. And, and the guy who was leaving was like, the most offensive thing you could do was to say their food is disgusting or not eat it. He's like, no matter what happens, whatever is put in front of you, we're going to eat it and we're going to eat it with a smile on our face. And I'm like, okay, no problem. I can do that. So we fly across the world. You know, we spend 30 some hours in travel. Uh, We have jet lag. We're exhausted. We get to church at night and like the whole church is there ready to throw a party for us. And, And they want to be, again, kind and gracious. So what they do is like, oh, Americans like pizza. Let's get them pizza. 
And um, what I learned very, very quickly is that Romanian pizza is very different from American pizza or Italian pizza or really any other pizza in the entire world. There are things on that pizza that should never be on pizza. But you know what? Like I was there, I was going to have a good attitude and it tasted weird, but I smiled and we had a great time and it was fine. And I'm like, okay, I I'm getting used to it. I can do it. And the next morning we were going to have breakfast and then go work all day, begin our construction projects. So in the morning, uh, they were like, what's the breakfast options? And they're like, well, we can have cereal. I'm like, great, a anyone can eat cereal, I can do cereal. And they're like, okay, we have cornflakes, perfect. Cornflakes is about as bland as it gets, that's a very, very safe bet. And they're like, all right, I'll have cornflakes. And, and, and they're like, would you like milk? And I was like, absolutely, I would love milk. And then I saw them grab the warm, unrefrigerated, lumpy milk, pour it into my cereal and hand me the bowl and say, here you go, here's your breakfast. Okay, now you need to understand there are very few things in the world that mess me up like spoiled milk. Like I'm the guy that when I see the expiration date on the milk jug, if I, I'm within three days, I'm out, right? Like I'm not gonna take any chances. It's not worth it. Or if it's just like the last little bit in the container, like that's been exposed to way too much air. I'm not drinking it. You know, I'll give that to, to Mary or one of my kids. They, they could do it. Judah loves milk. He'll be fine, we think. And uh, so I like hate spoiled milk. And this milk was so warm. And it was lumpy. And I just remember looking at the team leader and we caught eyes and he could tell like, he's like, Cal's not gonna do it. <laughs> and he just looked at me, he's like, you're gonna eat that. And I was like, nope, not gonna do it. <laughs> and I got up from the table and walked away and pretended like I needed to go to the bathroom and just never came downstairs. It was a big moment of failure on my part, but I was like, I did not sign up for the warm, chunky milk. I just didn't have it in me. And, and I think the disciples are a little bit like, man, I signed up to follow this teacher. I signed up to be a part of a movement that would change the world. I did not sign up to watch him die. And I did not sign up to be persecuted and to die a brutal death. There was real fear. All right, now look at chapter 17, verse one. Look what it says. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by himself, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Like, could you imagine like how amazing that would be to see. And his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at four reasons for the mountaintop or four reasons Jesus brought his friends to experience what they experienced. Here's the first one. Um, mountaintops help us see clearly. Mountaintops help us see clearly. Jesus takes his three closest friends who are scared, who are worried, who are struggling to, to embrace the reality of Jesus's tough teaching. And what he does is he goes, for a moment, just for an, a minute, I want you to see who I really am. And, and his humanity is stripped away. He starts shining like the sun. He is robed in white and Moses and Elijah show up. And then the voice of God, the father himself is there. And, and he's like, look who I am. It's going to be okay. I'm in control. It's going to be all right. The solution for their fear was to see Jesus clearly. And church, look here. 
the solution to whatever fear we have in our lives right now is for us to get our eyes on Jesus and to see him clearly. That is the answer to our fear, no matter what the fear is. Maybe the fear is a a physical issue. Maybe there's someone in your family who's really sick or there's been a bad diagnosis or, or there are health issues that maybe you don't even know what's going on. Well, when we get our eyes on Jesus and see him clearly, guess what we understand? That he is the author of life, that he is creator, that he is sustainer, that he holds the world together by the word of his power and that he loves us and he is uniquely in control of every single one of us here today and everyone we know, and everyone we love. He's in control. The answer to our fear is to see that our Savior loves us, and he's in control. Here's one. I think this one's probably pretty practical. Um, Any fears in our society right now over political unrest? Is Is that a little bit of a thing? Well, guess what our solution is, is if you're overwhelmed or if you're worried or if you're wrapped up in the political tides right now, we need to get our eyes on Jesus and see him clearly. And here's what I mean. In Revelation 1, 13 through 18, we get this picture of Jesus. It says this. It said, in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, and his hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze as, as refined in a fire, and his voice was like the roars of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, when I put up our political fears next to that picture of Jesus, guess what becomes very, very clear? I don't think Jesus is worried at all about what's happening politically in our country. He is king of kings, lord of lords, sovereign ruler over every nation and every army, king. He is not concerned at all. And if my king and my God and my savior isn't worried, I don't need to be either because he is absolutely in control. He's holding seven stars in his hand. And his eyes are like fire. He is absolutely ruler and Lord. So when I get nervous about what's happening in our society, I get my eyes onto Jesus and I say, wow, if my king's not worried, then being in his family means I don't have to be worried either. What about broken relationships? What about a sin issue that just has you in its claws and it doesn't seem like you're ever going to be free? Well, guess who our peacemaker is? both between God and man and between others. It's Jesus Christ. Guess who's the one who has paid the debt that sin has put on our lives? It's Jesus. He is our hope for salvation. We don't need to fear because we have Jesus. What about provision? Man, how am I gonna make it financially? The economy's in the tank. Well, listen, Jesus is the one who says, I provide for the sparrow in the field. How much more will I provide for those whom I know and who I'm loved and who I've called according to my purpose? He is in control of everything. Our problem is, is when we give into fear, it's because our view of Jesus has become way too limited. Amen? We need to get our eyes on Jesus. That's what the disciples needed. And Jesus knew that. And that's what our hearts need as well. Okay, here's the second purpose of the mountain. It's this. It's to encourage our hearts. It's to encourage our hearts. Look at verse 3. It said, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So there's this really cool moment happening in verse three where Moses and Elijah, they come down from the sky and they're talking with Jesus. And in Luke, it says that they're talking about what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. 
And what Moses and Elijah are doing is, is they're encouraging the heart of Jesus. They're like, you're going to save the world. You're going to do it. You're almost there. It's going to happen. So there's this moment where Jesus himself is being encouraged, but he's also encouraging his disciples because he's allowing them to see it take place. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. My plans are going to be accomplished. And the reason for mountaintop experiences or the reason why God allowed this to happen is so their hearts would be encouraged. Um, so this is a big week for the Wisen family, for my family. Um, my girls, Nora and Ashley, on Tuesday, they turned 10. So I've got girls in double digits right now, which is actually wildly depressing, right? Like I feel like I am so old and I'm going to drop them off in college in about two months from now. That's what I'm feeling, but I'm okay. Thanks for asking. But th this is like a big week for us. The, the game's changing again. It doesn't help that like when I hug them now, they're not babies anymore. They're like, they come up to my neck. Like it's, it, it's wild. And um, every time birthdays roll around, I don't know if you're like me, but I always think about what it was like when, when my kids were born. And um, here's what I would say. We started with twins, so we didn't know any different. Um, but the first three to six months uh, of raising twins is wildly hard because you've got two infants and, and they have their own sleep schedules. And that means that mom and dad pretty much just never, ever, ever sleep. And I have like one memory from the first three months of when they were babies. And it was literally, it was 2 a.m., I had both babies in my arm. I was trying to let Mary sleep a little bit, and I was balancing two bottles on two fingers, trying to feed them at the same time, trying not to doze off, and just thinking to myself, my life is over. Like, this is, I'm never going to recover from this. And, uh, and, and here's what was interesting, though. In that time, in those first six months, we had like three or four different moms of twins who were in our neighborhood or in our church or people that just knew us. They reached out to us, and they're like, listen, you can do it. Get through the first three to six months and then raising twins is the best because they always have someone to play with. They're never alone, they're never isolated and it actually gets way easier after they start sleeping a little bit. Just get through this first hurdle and you're going to love it. Like they all said the same thing and it's like, wow, they, they must be onto something. And the funny thing was is they were exactly right. Like my twins were way easier to raise combined than my son Bo all by himself. That's because my son, Bo, you put him down for two seconds and he demanded everyone's attention. Like he just didn't have that gear to play because he never had a, like a live-in playmate. And so the funny thing now is 10 years later, you know, we've had women in our church, we found out are pregnant with twins. And it's funny, Lisa Angers, one of the ladies on our worship team, the first time we met her is because she came up front at the end of the service where we were praying with people. And she's like, Cal, where's Mary? I need to talk to her. And I'm like, okay, she's right there. And she came to Mary. She goes, Mary, I just found out I'm pregnant with twins and I'm terrified. And our girls were a couple years old at the time. And Mary's like, oh, it's the best. You're going to love it. And she's like, I'm not sure you're right, right? But we were able to help her and encourage her and walk her through what the pregnancy was going to be like and what the first few months were going to be like. We were able to be an encouragement to their hearts because we'd gone through it before. Okay, Moses and Elijah had been through a lot in their lives in ministry, and they've been on the other side of eternity. They're encouraging Jesus, saying, listen, we can do this. You're, you're close. Like, it's going to be okay. And Jesus is encouraging his disciples in the process. Listen, one of the reasons we need Christian community is because there's seasons where our hearts need to be encouraged. 
And I know I need it, and I would imagine you do. Sometimes you just need people around you who love you and love the Lord that just are going to say, it's going to be okay, you're not alone. That's what's happening on the mountain. Here's the third reason for the mountaintop. It's this. It's to set our resolve. It's to set our resolve. Look at verse 5. It says, And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right, so Jesus is shining like the sun. Moses and Elijah are there. And if that's not enough, God the Father comes down himself and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And it's interesting because he uses the exact same language he used when Jesus was baptized and he began his ministry. Remember, he came out of the water and a dove came down descending on Jesus. And God said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And what he was saying is, this is my boy. You're doing it. Listen to him. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to save the world. And now as Jesus has his gaze set towards Jerusalem, when it's really getting hard, God shows up again and says the same thing. You're still doing it. You're my boy. This is my plan. You're going to accomplish it. I am proud of you. I am pleased with you. Listen to him. He's going to save the world. And what's so cool about this moment is we get to see God the Father be a father to God the Son, right? Because parents, we know this, there are just times where we need to help our kids when they're struggling and set their resolve, don't we? Um, Just a couple weeks ago, my daughter Ashley, she's just the sweetest girl in the whole world, but school's always been hard for her. And she's a good student, she gets good grades, but it just takes her longer and it's a lot of work. And um, I remember a couple days ago, she came home from school And I just looked at her and her eyes were like filled with tears and just was really, really struggling. And I'm like, hey, Ashley, what's wrong? What's going on? Did you have a bad day at school? And she goes, no. And I'm like, was anyone being mean to you? She goes, no, I'm just really struggling. And I was like, why? And she goes, just, I just have a lot of homework and it's so overwhelming. And the kids at school do it so much faster than me. and, And I'm just really, really like having a hard time. And she started to cry. Okay, so guess what I did in that moment? I'm like, how about this? How about we just take a 10-minute Daddy Ashley cuddle break? And she sat down. I put my arm around her, and I just told her, like, you're an incredible girl, and I love you, and your heart is sensitive to the Lord, and you're a great friend, and you're an incredible help to Mommy and Daddy, and you're a great student. Like, you're going to get through this. It's okay. I know it's hard right now, but Mommy and Daddy are here to help you, and we're going to do whatever we can. And then after, like, 10 minutes, she was like, okay, I want to go do homework now. And I was like, wow, I smell that bad, huh? No, and she's like, no, no. But she just felt better. Like she was ready to do it. She just needed her dad to help set her resolve to do the hard thing. And that's what the Lord is doing in this moment, both to Jesus and to the disciples. And here's the the final reason for the mountain. It's this. It's to get us ready to leave. It's to get us ready to leave. Look at verse 4. It says, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. And if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So Peter doesn't want to leave. He's like, wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. How about I build us homes up here and let's just stay? This is way better up here than what's going on down there. Let's just stay on top of the mountain. You see, he was scared about what Jesus was teaching. And he's like, maybe this is the solution. Maybe we can just pretend that that's not real. Let's just stay on the mountain. And it's funny because as a person who did youth ministry for a long time, I've had this same exact conversation 
a bunch of different times. And here's what I mean. In the winter and in the summer, we, to kind of create a mountaintop experience for our students, we bring them up to Camp Harvest. And in the summer, it's a week. In the winter, it's a weekend. But it's just a great time of worshiping the Lord, getting after things, building relationships. And it's just a powerful week every single time. And what happens every time without fail, the night before we're about to leave, a student would come up to me and they would just be sobbing. They would just be weeping. And I'd be like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And this is what was said every time. They're like, this has been the best week of my life and I just don't want to go home. And maybe they gave their life to Christ. Maybe the Lord met with them in a powerful way. I think one of the coolest for me always was a lot of times it was the kids in youth group who didn't have a lot of friends or struggled to make friends. And what would happen is, is they're like, man, at home, I don't have any friends and I feel isolated. And here I felt loved and I felt known and people were so kind to me and I was included and I just don't want to lose that. Maybe it was because a kid had a tough family dynamic, but they're like, I just want to stay here. Can, can we just stay another week? I don't want to go home. And I'd kind of have to walk that kid through. No, no, listen, the purpose of this place was never to live here or move here. The purpose was to be built up, to be encouraged so that we could go honor the Lord in what he's calling us to when we come home. And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't even acknowledge Peter's request. And, and here's why. Do you see the selfishness of Peter's heart in verse four when he says that? Hey, Lord, it is good that we are here. Let, let us just stay and I'll even build tents. Okay, in that moment, is Peter thinking about anyone but himself? Right, he's not thinking about the other nine disciples who are at the bottom of the mountain, his buddies, his partners in ministry who are still ministering to the crowds. He's not thinking about them. He doesn't care about them at all. He just wants to stay with Jesus on top of the mountain. Here's a question. Does he care about all the people who need Jesus, who need physical healing or spiritual healing? Does he care about the plans of Jesus and all of the people throughout the generations that would be saved by what Jesus would accomplish on the cross? No, he's just like, in this moment, all I can think about is myself and I don't want to suffer. I don't want to see Jesus die. Let's just stay here. And this isn't in your notes, but if you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Here's a very important principle that we see. It's that very rarely is the easiest thing or the thing my heart would naturally gravitate towards the best thing. Very rarely is the easy thing or the thing that my heart would be like, I just want to do this. Very rarely is that the right thing or is that the best thing. Peter's trying to choose the easy thing. This gets me out of the pain of having to go to Jerusalem, of having to pick up my cross. Let's just stay here. And by the way, this, this is so true in our lives. Like, like, let me just, I'll use an example from my life this week. So on Thursday night, I had my small group guys over. And um, we're kind of doing it right now where one, one week will be guys, one week will be girls, then one week will be combined. And that's how we're trying to navigate it in this season. And Thursday night, it was the guys were going to come over and hang out and, uh, uh, it was five o'clock at night, and, and Thursday is my sermon writing day. So those are long days. It, it's hard work. And, and at five o'clock, I was exhausted, and I forgot we had small group at seven. And I remember telling Mary, like, man, I am just wiped out. And Mary's like, well, you better not be because you got guys coming over in two hours. And I remember in that moment, just like, I don't want them to. Like the thing in my heart that I wanted, the easier thing, the thing that my heart would gravitate towards was I just want to sit on the couch and veg out and let my mind rest. That was the selfish, sinful thing that my heart was gravitating towards. 
But I was like, no, you know what, they, they, they need to, and um, it, it'll be good. And so I kind of got ready for that, and they came over and were over for an hour and a half, and we had such a sweet time together. We shared what was going on in our lives. We encouraged each other. We helped set each other's resolve, and, and we prayed for each other. And when I left, I told Mary, like, man, that was so good. My heart needed that. But it wasn't the easy thing. And it wasn't the thing my heart naturally gravitated towards. And I just want to be really honest with us right now as we gather back together. One of the concerns I have for our church and honestly for our country is that we've gone through a season where we've all quarantined and been isolated. And if you look in scripture, guess what happens when people isolate themselves from other, others? They become a more selfish version of themselves. Because when we isolate from one another, we only have to think about ourselves. And when I'm only thinking about me and what I want and what I have going, I, by definition, am becoming a worse, more selfish version of ourselves. And my fear is, is that because of the events of 2020, we're probably all a little bit more of a selfish version of ourselves. And now we're all going to come back together and try to make it work in community. And we're going to have to get really, really good at choosing the hard thing that's the right thing rather than the easy thing that's the selfish thing that my heart would naturally gravitate towards. Does that make sense? Good, so you can all tell your friends, yeah, pastor called me selfish today because, you know, that'll be nice. I'm calling myself selfish too. I think we're all gonna have to work through it together. But it's honestly, it's something we need to be on guard of in our own hearts is are we training ourselves to do what's easy rather than what's right? Okay, so here's what we're gonna do now to close our time. We see this amazing moment where Jesus brings his friends up to a mountaintop. So the question was is, what do we do when we come down off the mountain? What was Jesus trying to accomplish in the hearts of his disciples? So look at verse 14. It says, and when they came to the crowd, and if you take notes in your Bible, just underline that, that line right there. We'll get to it in a second. It says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him kneeling before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Okay, here, here's the first thing we see. When we come down off the mountain, the first thing we do is we be faithful to what we've been called to. And, and what blows me away about this passage is they go right from the mountaintop straight back into the grind of ministry, right? Jesus had been ministering and teaching and healing and doing all of this, and it was frustrating and exhausting, and the crowd never went away. They were waiting for them as soon as they got down from the mountain. And the disciples had to help and they had to do ministry and they went right back in to the grind of life. So what do we do once we meet with God and we have this mountaintop experience? We go back and we be faithful to what they've been called to. Jesus immediately is faced with a demonically oppressed child. He faces the demonic and he teaches a crowd and he instructs his disciples and he is faithful to what God has called him to. So here's the question. What has the Lord called us to be faithful to? Well, here's the answer. It's a lot. And I don't know what yours are individually, but I'll, I'll share mine. And I think that will help kind of give you an idea of what the Lord has called you to. Guess what the Lord's called me to primarily? To my wife and my kids. 
And I'm called to love my wife as Christ has loved the church, to model a selfless, caring, sacrificing love that I would shepherd my wife's heart. And then I have four kids who I'm called to be the example of of God's fatherly love and affection and kindness. And that when my kids think of God the Father, they would look at him with affection because they know that their earthly father loves them and cares for them and is for him and and kind to them and, and patient with them. I'm called to my family and then I come to work during the week and I'm called to lead a church and I'm called to, with the elders, make decisions that would honor the Lord and to shepherd people and to lead the staff and help equip them and encourage their hearts. Like there's a lot that God's called me to in this place. And then I come home and I have neighbors and I have extended family and I have friends that I'm called to be a light to and witness to and show that my hope is in Jesus Christ and to live in a way that is separate from the world showing my hope is in Jesus Christ. It's a lot, isn't it? And I would bet that God has called you to equally as much. The workplace, the home, your kids, your parents, your families, your authorities. We are called to honor the Lord in every aspect of our lives, to be faithful to our calling. And by the way, I I think when you think about it most simply, I think this is the rhythm of why um, we gather together to worship. It's so that we can come together, that we can see Jesus clearly, that we can be encouraged, that our resolve can be set, and then we can leave encouraged to go be what God has called us to be in this community. And then we gather together in small groups to do the same thing, to encourage, to see Jesus clearly, to set our resolve, and to go honor the Lord with our lives. We need this rhythm if we're going to be successful. And then here's the second one. It's this. Um, We lay down our rights for others. We lay down our rights for others. Look at verse 24. This is a fascinating passage that's very rarely teached on. It says this. It says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then sons are free. Okay, so this is super interesting. What's happening is Jesus and his disciples enter a village of Capernaum and they're asked, are you going to pay the temple tax? So this isn't a tax to Rome. It's not required by law, but it's a tax to help support the Jewish temple. And Jesus is like, so Peter, do we need to pay that tax? And he uses this analogy. He says, when the king taxes people, Does he tax his kids or does he tax his subjects? And and Peter's like, well, he taxes his subjects. And he's like, great, so we don't need to pay our taxes because we're sons. And, And it's interesting, whenever Jesus is brought into political situations, he really tries to talk about identity first. There's another passage where someone's like, hey, do we need to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus is like, give to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, give unto God's that which is God's. And he's trying to say, listen, we are the children of God. Don't get wrapped up in what's happening politically here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And even here, he's reminding his disciples, hey, listen, we're sons of God. We're children of the king. You need to understand your identity is you're part of God's family. So you're free to not pay this tax. But then look what he says in 27. However, not to give an offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel and give it to them for me and for yourself. 
So Jesus says, even though we're free not to do these things, we don't want to be an offense and damage our witness. So go throw your you know, hook in the water, catch a fish, and there'll be money in that fish. You can pay the tax. Which, first of all, how nice would that be if that was like still a thing, right? Like when mortgage payments are due. Hey, hon, I'm going to go catch a largemouth bass. I'll be right back. Everything's taken care of, right? Like that's just, it just shows how like supernatural and, and just on top of everything Jesus was. But what's interesting is the point Jesus is making, we need to get this church. He's saying, even though we're free not to do it, we're not going to be an offense and we're going to lay down our freedoms to not be an offense to others. So go pay the tax. And what I want you to see, church, is I think we probably have the best opportunity of our lifetime to model what it looks like to joyfully lay down our rights in order not to be an offense to others. Like God has given us such an incredible opportunity to model this joyfully. And here's what I mean. Many of you know that America has done a really, really good job of having religious freedoms and liberties and protections. You guys know this, right? You've learned this about in civics class and I know it's been talked a lot. So here's what that means. Basically, we in this building can do whatever we want. And I don't have to have any um, capacity limits if I didn't want to. We could fill this place up to the wall. We could have no um, sanitizing policies or social distancing practices. And um, you're going to hate me for saying this. If I didn't um, choose to, we wouldn't even have to wear masks. Like we could use our freedoms to pretend like we weren't going through what 2020 and 2021 has been and just proceed as life is normal. We're free to do that. Here's the question we need to ask ourselves. If we did that, and if we packed this room out with a thousand people and there was no distancing and no mask, would that be an offense to others? Of course it would. It absolutely would because there is nowhere else in our community or our state or our society where you're allowed to do those things. So we've made the decision as elders to protect our witness and to not be an offense to others. We're going to stay with the restrictions that are in our community. And here's the thing. Not because I like it, not because I want to. Like when we get to the point when we don't have to wear masks anymore, we can have a mask burning party in the parking lot. It'll be a great time, right? <laughs> like like I, I'm, I, I'm for it, listen. But again, there's this principle that very, very rarely is the easy thing or the thing that my heart would gravitate towards. Very rarely is it the right thing or the best thing. So we want to joyfully model, hey, in order not to be an offense, we're going to lay down these rights because we want to be a witness to our community and we want to show more than anything that our hope is in Jesus Christ. And I think that's the point of this whole sermon. You had disciples who were fearful about what was going on around them. And by the way, I think in so many ways that can be us for so many different reasons. It's a scary season to be a Christian. It's a scary season in a lot of ways to be an American. So guess what we're gonna do? We're going to see Jesus clearly for who he is. We're going to be encouraged by his word. We're going to set our resolve that he is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he is the one who's going to hold everyone accountable. And then we're going to leave and we're going to do our best to shine as lights in a dark and scary world, amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I'm just thankful for um, this morning. I'm thankful for the gift of us to be able to, to gather together. And uh, God, I'm just thankful for this church. I'm thankful for what you're doing. I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that um, 
You even chose to give the disciples just a brief glimpse of your divinity and you protected that in your word so that our hearts could be encouraged today thousands of years later. You are good, you are faithful. Help us to be faithful to what you've called us to. Help us to model your example of laying yourself down for others. May we do that with joy in our hearts because we love you and your way is always the best way. Help us, we, we need strength. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.